0: it's an honor to be here i think a lot of sam love what he's doing is it's great to be here. i've been married over 16 years now i have two boys an 11 year old and a nine year old my house is full of a lot of energy and personality we try to develop prayer lives in my kids and it's really interesting sometimes listening to the way they both talk to god but also how they want to pray for other people a few years ago we had some folks come over to our house for dinner And it's a bunch of adults, we were hanging out, and they were about to leave, and my kids came in the room, and they said, hey, before our friends leave, can we pray over your friends? And who's going to tell their kids they can't pray over friends? So everybody sat back down, and my oldest kid began to pray, and he's like, God, thank you for it. And he starts naming things, you know, God, thanks for the house, thanks for trees. And then my son went, He, he, he said this, he said, God, thank you that no one in this room has died. And then he said, but someone in this room has died. And when he said that, I opened my eyes to see if somehow my son was a prophet and someone had fallen over dead. Like, is this Ananias a fire all over again? I didn't know. And he said, but someone in this room has died. And it's Jesus. But he's not dead anymore. He's alive. And help us to live like this. In the name of Jesus, amen. And everyone in the room, like, tears were coming down their cheeks. And I was like, God, whatever you just taught my kid and put it in him to pray, may that be how he lives the rest of his life. So a lot of times at night when we pray, we have certain things we pray for. And one of the things we pray for every single night is this clash between light and darkness. That we live in a dark world, you God is, is the light, and God has called us to be the light. And we pray over my 11- and 9-year-old. It's prayers they pray quite often. God, help us to be light. And Help us not to not to live in darkness. And, and it's the way we've taught them to pray. That don't be afraid of the darkness because God is light. John 1.5 has become one of my favorite verses. That the light is coming to the world and the darkness cannot overcome the light. That when light and darkness class it's really not even a fight. Light wins. But we know darkness exists in many different ways throughout our world. and. and we live in the city of Memphis uh, and there are challenges of darkness inside of the lives of individuals and there's darkness that exists throughout different systems and racial injustice and the list goes on. I was asked to speak at a Christian college, another Christian college, a few years ago and they asked me to go and speak to college students on sex. And I was like, man, is there any way I can win in this one? This is going to be fun. So I went and, I, and they asked, can you stay over and do a QA? and a with students on sex and and how we can reclaim purity if we've lost it before. So I went and I spoke in chapel and then I stayed over that night and I did a Q and A and I didn't know if college students would show up and over a hundred students did show up. I didn't know what kind of questions they would ask and let's just say every question in the book was asked that night. What I wasn't expecting is that after the Q and A, there was a line of college students waiting to talk to me afterwards. And I tried to spend time with every single one of them to hear what it was on their hearts and how I could pray for them. And over an hour went by. It's a long line of college students. And at the very end, there was one girl. She sat down on the front pew with her face in her hands the entire time. I'm ministering to all these other college students. And she sat there crying. And she waited until everyone else was finished. And I went over to her and she said, for 21 years of my life, I was squeaky clean. I never had a drink of alcohol, never messed around with a guy. And 48 hours ago, I got drunk and lost my virginity all in the same night. And then of all things that they bring you in to talk about today, it's about sex and about how how, through God we can reclaim purity once we have lost it. And my only word to her was this, that the enemy, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, what he wants you to believe today, Is that this is your new identity and then to live into your reputation. But what God wants you to know is that forgiveness is real. And God can take whatever you have done and can bring you back into the light to thrive in the light. And that God doesn't just want to save people. God wants to use everything God saves. That God doesn't reluctantly save people. He doesn't reluctantly forgive people. Like, let's have a vote in heaven and maybe we'll forgive this person. But if we choose to forgive them, we may never use them. God wants to use whatever it is God saves. And I I know all of us in this room struggle with this clash between light and darkness inside of us of making decisions that honor who God is and decisions that don't honor who God is. But I know we are also caught up in a world where there are a lot of other forms of darkness too. There's darkness at individual levels and there's darkness also at all kind of systematic levels. So my wife and I, seven and a half years ago, made a decision to move into what many would call an under-resourced or underprivileged or a hood-type neighborhood. We moved into inner-city Memphis. And we didn't move in to be people who moved into a neighborhood because we had what everybody in our neighborhood didn't have. And we were going to, none of those people knew Jesus. We, we went in knowing that God had been fully alive in the neighborhood we were move, moving into. And we just wanted to see what God was up to. For seven and a half years, I can testify that there are people in my neighborhood who've had a deeper love for Jesus than we have ever had. There are people in my neighborhood who take better care of us than we take care of them. This is where we've chosen to raise our family. A few years ago, we were outside playing, and we live on a really busy interse- or street in our neighborhood. There's a lot of foot traffic, and we have a small little dog, and that dog has introduced us to more neighbors than we ever could. People like dogs. So they come to our fence and play with our dog, and then we're able to go outside and see people. And kids come by, and they want to play with our dog. And kids come by any time we play basketball. They want to come shoot hoops. A few years ago, this girl came by. I'd never met her before. She was about 12 years old. And she came by and she said, let me just guess, y'all are from Texas, aren't you? And, and my wife and I, we both were born and raised in Texas, but we're not the kind of Texas people who hang Texas flags on the outside of our home or have big Texas symbols and we don't have Texas bumper stickers on our car. So we were like, yeah, we're from Texas, but how did you, how'd you know that? What made you think we're from Texas? And so she looked at us and she just shrugged and she's like, all white people are from Texas. <laughs> we're like, I'm sure there's some white people who think everything came from Texas. I'm, I'm sure there, there is, but we, we said, I mean, yeah, we came from Texas, but there's some white people born right here in Memphis. And she said, really? There are white people born in Memphis? we said, yeah. We said, where are you from? She said, I'm from right here in Binghampton, which is the neighborhood we live in in Memphis. And we said, Binghampton's a great place to be from. And she looked at it and she said, no, it ain't. People get shot and we die around here. And I didn't know how to respond to a 12-year-old girl. Whose perception of her neighborhood and her upbringing was that we just know people who we know and love are going to get shot and die around here. I didn't know what to say, so my wife just responded with, how about we try to love in a way that we change that? There's darkness that exists at individual levels, social levels, every level of society. So a few years ago, I was writing a sermon on Jesus being the light of the world. on this clash between light and darkness. And as I was writing a sermon, I I just remembered I had seen a documentary or maybe it was in a movie a long time ago that there are places way up north above the Arctic Circle. So we're talking as far north up in Alaska, Canada, and Russia as you can get. And I had heard that there are places that go lengthy seasons every winter without seeing the sun and that it can have major impacts on people. Like there could be higher rates of depression and suicide attempts. I'm sure some of you suffer from seasonal affective disorder. Like you go a week in the winter time when it's blistering cold and you don't see the sun for a week and you begin going into a funk. When this happens in Memphis, I have people call me and they're like, man, I haven't seen the sun in a week. Please pray for me. I don't want to get out of bed. And this is real. But there are places above the Arctic Circle that go lengthy these seasons. So I, I began doing research and reading articles, and, 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 I, and I did see, I saw there are places above the Arctic Circle, and there aren't a lot of people who live way up in this, these areas. But there is a peak season for a lot of these neighborhoods or communities where there are peak seasons for depression and suicide attempts. So I found this, there's a little town called Barrow, Alaska, the northernmost point of Alaska. So it's as far north in Alaska as you can get. It's a town of five, 6,000 people. And around this community, uh, there are they, they often go every winter. They go about 75 days without seeing the sun every winter. So around November 18th, and they won't see the sun again until around January 23rd. Can you imagine going over two months without seeing the sun in the wintertime? And that in a lot of these places, there is a peak season for depression and suicide, but it's not during the period of darkness. It's when the light comes back. And if I was a bad man, I would have bet that I would put my money on, it's in the season of darkness where depression rates are at their highest, but it's actually when the sun returns. Well, this got my imagination going all crazy a few years ago, because I thought, man, that like I'm with people constantly who suffer from that. Like they try to walk through some form of darkness to re-enter into the light, but sometimes re-entering into the light is a lot harder than, than we can make it out to be. It's not an easy thing to do. So I thought, man, you know what, I'm going to write a book on this. So I called up my literary agent. It's not because I'm an author who sells a lot of books. I've just chosen to go that route. I've made my agent enough money that he can go shop, shop at Target every once in a while, all right? But I called him because he's been a good friend. i yeah, throw ideas at him and he'll tell me if I have a book idea that sucks or if it's one maybe we could run with. And he said, hey, I, I like what you're talking about, but if you want to write about that, you have to go there. You need to go visit the community. I was like, dude, you're crazy. I grew up in Texas. I live in Memphis. I don't do cold. I'm never speaking at York again unless it's between May and September, all right? I hate the cold. But, and, and, but he taught me into it, so I booked a flight. I went up to Barrow, Alaska back in 2014, and I went in the last week of the period of darkness. So I'm in January of 2014. When I landed in Barrow, Alaska on the runway, I checked my phone, and it said negative 38 degrees. Some of you may have lived in places like that, all right? I just saw that, and I immediately texted my wife back in Memphis, and I said, baby, I love you. I love the boys. I hope you have a great life. I'm going to (laughs) die. And for 11 days, I spent time in this community because I thought if they know how to make it through two months of not seeing the sun and making it through darkness, maybe they have principles that guide people and guide their communities that could teach us something about navigating darkness no matter where we live. I took a videographer with me, and so for 11 days we shot seven hours of footage and got testimonies with people and interviewed folks and met with people from schools to libraries, hospitals, recovery groups, anybody who would meet with me. I just wanted to hear their stories. And there's one story that really stuck with me, and it was a counselor at the local high school. And I sat with this guy and I shared with him why I was there and the research I had done. And How the research showed the re-entry into the light can be a real challenge for people. And when I finished sharing with him while I was there, this counselor looked at me and he said, man, what you're saying today makes a lot of sense. And he said, because every winter, after the winter, when the sun returns, he said, depression enters into me for a couple of weeks. And he said, the reason why is that after you've been through a hard, cold, blistering winter, you expect that whenever you see the sun again, that that light will bring immediate change. But he said, it doesn't. He said, the light returns. The sun is there. You can see the sun, but all of the elements of winter remain. They don't go away. He said, in fact, a lot of times the sun returns and it gets colder. And the snow and ice keeps coming. So I sat there and had a conversation with him of how often we navigate seasons of darkness. And we're coming into the light, but all of the elements that have held us down in the past still remain. So how do we navigate that? This is a challenge for people who are getting out of jails and prisons all the time, right? How do they re-enter into society? Especially how do they re-enter when all the elements and people who have held them down in the past still exist and still are there? How do we make decisions to thrive in the life? So when I first moved to Memphis, I said, God, I, I want to learn to love this city the way you love this city. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I went on ride-alongs with fire departments and police departments. And one night I went on a ride-along on a Friday night with an undercover cop in Memphis. He said, man, I'm not on duty tonight, so we have to take your truck. I said, that's fine. At the time, I was driving an old Ford Ranger pickup truck. It's Been in my family since birth. My dad had it. I bought it from my dad when I went to college. It was about a 20-year-old truck. So the first guy we went to visit, he was a guy uh, who the cops, he had been in and out of jail and prison for over 16 years, and the cops were holding a few charges over him because he was helping solve cases for the Memphis Police Office. So we went and we hung out with this guy and I saw him and I said, man, look, we're going to be driving around in my truck tonight. We're going to go into, you know, maybe some rough neighborhoods. And and I said, I just want to know, is my truck going to be safe? It was about a 20-year-old truck at the time. And this guy looked at my truck and he looked at me and he looked at my truck and he looked at me and said, Pastor, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but ain't nobody going to touch your truck tonight. He said, you can leave this thing unlocked and people aren't going to touch this truck. And I looked at this guy who had been in and out of jail, in and out of prison for 16 years, and I said, James, I need to ask you one question. Why do people make decisions? Or why are people released from a prison or jail, and then make decisions to enter right back in? Because at 201 Poplar, the famous city jail in Memphis, 66% of the inmates, this is at least their sixth time to be in 201 Poplar, and I said, why do people experience freedom only to make decisions to enter right back in? And he took about a minute to formulate his thoughts. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor Josh, I guess when it comes down to it, me and some of my friends do not know what it, lo- what it is like to be free. And I looked at him and I said, James, I think I preach in front of people every single week who would say the same thing. That some of us have just become complacent with the darkness I experience is the darkness that will just go with me forever. Instead of trying to enter into a journey of what does it mean to live in the light and thrive in the light? So I just want to ask you, if you don't mind, will you close your eyes, bow your heads, and if you're, if you're okay and comfortable, will you just open your hands as in your lap where you are? Sometimes it helps me to open my hands in prayer, but a lot of times my heart follows where my posture takes it. And with open hands, I just want to pray right now, God, that we come to you with open hands and open hearts, that if there is darkness in us that maybe we've allowed in and that we haven't dealt with, that you will shine your light, bring your light reveal a way out for those here who are currently pressing against the darkness, eager to get out and to thrive in the light, God, both show them the way and give them the courage to live into their freedom. Jesus, you are light, and I pray, God, that you will shine your, your light, your resurrection power upon us so that everything in us may be brought to life in and through the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.